wearing my University of Butler, Butler University shirt in honor of my daughter who is not here tonight. It's going to be weird going out to dinner after church without her. I'm hoping maybe she's even watching it right now, so shout out Kennedy if you're there. Um, Casey said, said RIP seniors, so we have a lot of seniors who are out tonight because they went off to college. Matthew who's usually playing the drums, and Kennedy and Lucas. Chloe, I don't know if uh, Chloe Lang, she always did the art out in the lobby. And so um, the beautiful artwork we've seen for five years, most of that has been her out there, so we're missing her. Uh, big shoes to fill with these kids. They're young adults now gone. And so if you want to learn to play an instrument, I already told Cody we we're going to track down a bass guitar for him so he can learn to play. Dylan, you're up, man. You got to bring the acoustic. You got to start playing. Big shoes to fill. I know Emery's going to start doing some art, not my Emery, but but Emery Sandlin, and so we got shoes to fill, but it's great to have young people in the church willing to step up and serve and lead. Now, speaking of dropping off my daughter for college, so in our family, kind of when we go on trips, it goes like this. My wife, Karen, her job is to pack herself and the kids, and wherever the kids are going, she packs each of the kids and the suitcases. This was a special trip, though, because we're taking Kennedy away to college, and so she also had to buy stuff for her dorm, and so she bought it on Amazon. She had it shipped to uh, a niece that we have up in Indianapolis, and she took care of all of that. Just a lot of planning and organizing with the college. She had to you know, pay the bills and do all the things that we had to do to get Kennedy registered. It's just been a lot for her to do. And then once we got there, she had to, you know, decorate the dorm and make it look all pretty and do all of that stuff. My job for this trip, I had one job, book the travel. That was my job. And so I booked it. We got there safely. We had a rental car when we got there. Did a good job. Put us in a little VRBO downtown and got to walk to Starbucks every morning. So it was nice. That was my job, book the travel. We get to the airport to come home. We had a 7 a.m. flight. You got to get up at 4 a.m., which we don't like to do, to get to the airport by 6 a.m. to catch that flight. Southwest, we go to the terminal. You know, it's electronic these days. There's no human interaction, it seems like, anywhere anymore. But we get to the terminal. It's time to check in for our flight. I scanned my little barcode. It wouldn't scan. I'm like, dang, that sucks. So I had to type in the confirmation code to pull up our flight home. Still didn't pull up. I thought it was a broken kiosk. So I went over to the next kiosk. The same thing happened yet again. Karen looks at my phone and she says, why does it say our flight is from Fort Myers to Indy this morning? We were in Indianapolis. I had one job. <laughs> I screwed it up. Praise the Lord, Southwest did have a 9 a.m. flight. So after killing three or four hours in the airport, we did make it home. I had one job. And if you don't know me, and that was the only story you ever heard about Brian Culbertson, what would you think? What would your opinion of me be? Maybe that I was an idiot, be accurate, or that I'm irresponsible. You would label me because you only got one part of my story. You got one little incident in my story. You wouldn't know that I've booked dozens of flights, never got it wrong, going different directions. You wouldn't know that I've booked flights for mission trips where we had 20 or 30 people on flights and got them to a foreign country and back. I had one mishap. But that's what you would think of me if that's the only story that you knew. You wouldn't know that there is a lot more to Brian Culbertson than booking flights from Fort Myers to Indy, or sometimes Indy back to Fort Myers. 
We start a new series tonight. I called it Monarchy of Misfits. We're going to be looking at the first kings of Israel. And for the next four months, probably, I think now through Christmas, we're going to go through the books of First and Second Samuel together as a church. Now, each week, I'm posting homework on Facebook, and I'll share it at the end of each service for those of you who aren't on the Facebook page. And so what I'm doing as we go through this new series is I want to encourage you to read the text. That yes, I do more than screw up flights. Part of my story is actually being pastor of this church and wanting to encourage you guys to get into the Bible, to encourage you to read it and to meditate on it. And so each Saturday, you read it in advance, and then you're going to come in here, and I'll unpack it, and I hope that maybe you'll learn a thing or two. There is more to my story than booking wrong flights. So an example, here's some learning we're going to do tonight. Did you know that First and Second Samuel, it's actually two books in our Bible. If you go to your Bible, there's a First Samuel, there's a Second Samuel. But in the original Hebrew, it's one narrative. There is no First and Second Samuel. This is meant to be just one big long book. You know why there's two books in our Bible? Scrolls are only so long. They can only fit so much on one piece of paper, and so they rolled out the scroll, they got to the end of it, and then they finished it on another scroll, so we divided it when, we, uh, when there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, they put it into First and Second Samuel. So you've learned something tonight. You've came here, you showed up, you took your Saturday night off, and you came in here and you learned. Don Furman, I'm going to call her out. Where are you, Don? When we first started this church, her and Jeff and her, their family were here the very first service, came back the next week. I don't know if you remember this, Don, but you asked me, hey, you know, do you teach the Old Testament? Do you remember asking me? No, you don't remember asking me? I'm like, that's an interesting question. And I thought, well, I don't like to that much. I like the epistles and I like Paul and I like the gospels. But yeah, I'll teach the Old Testament as some foundation. You know, Genesis, it's kind of the foundation for all theology and Exodus. And we'll do some Psalms and we'll do some Proverbs, even have done Jonah. But I've never taught First and Second Samuel because it's one of the tougher ones to teach. There's a lot of stories in here, and I want you to read through these stories. If you were in the community groups on last Saturday when we met together, there should have been some nice, easy Bible verses that we threw out at you, and then some of those really bad ones where, you know, Saul's told to kill everybody, women and children too. And so there are verses in First and Second Samuel and stories in First and Second Samuel that are going to be tough ones. Now, of course, there's everyone's favorite story, David and Goliath, and, you know, we can say, you know, overcoming your giants and, you know, that whole thing. That's not even what that story's about. But to teach this as a full series for the next four months, for you to read it and for you to listen to it, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for me in teaching it. It's going to be a challenge for you in listening to it. And I happen to love challenges. So I'm super excited to be here, to be teaching this, and to uh, crack this book open tonight. So let's get a little history, a little Old Testament catch-up to where we are in First and Second Samuel, if you don't know. So Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament. They've been rescued from slavery. You know, they were slaves in Egypt, and, and Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go, you know the story, and they go through the Red Sea, and they spend the next 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And there they get the Ten Commandments, they get some of God's law. Eventually, they make it to the promised land, and God continues to add to the law. And what we learn through the rest of the books leading up to First and Second Samuel, 
that the Israelites are not very good at keeping God's law. And so he implements a judge system uh, in place. And so there's 12 tribes in Israel, and each tribe kind of has their own judge, as best I can tell. But it's kind of disorganized, and it's changing, and it's confusing. And there's part of the judge, he's a military leader, and he's a governor, and he's also the spiritual leader. And it's just this kind of changing and evolving system that's a little bit tough to figure out. Then we get the first and second Samuel. It's the end of the judges. There's going to be a king that comes. First and second Samuel were written in 1000 BC, or I'm sorry, it was written about 1000 BC. That's the time of David and King Saul, but it was actually written and compiled around 600 BC. So there's 400 years between the time of this all happening and these stories being compiled and put together. It's probably multiple stories that have been compiled and put together. And so when we read first and second Samuel, there's three characters. Who knows the characters? You can shout out. I mean, I know we're not an extroverted, amening type church, but uh, First and Second Samuel. I got. I'll give you a clue. First and Second, who? Okay, he's. That's one. Who else? Saul, David. Yes. So Samuel. He is the last judge. Although he's more than a judge, he's kind of a prophet. He's this transitional figure. During Samuel's leadership, Israel then begins to beg for a king. They're like, we got these judges, but we want to unify. We want a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel cautions against this. He says, God is your king, but God eventually gives in and, and gives in to the Israelites and say, since you've rejected me, I'll give you a king. And we're going to talk about that next week. So then there's Saul, Samuel, who is the judge or the prophet. He anoints Saul as the very first king of Israel. And with Saul, it starts off well enough. You know, he's kind of on this uphill trajectory, but then it begins to go downhill. And that's kind of the cycle. It's up, 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 and it's down, down, down for Saul. And then we get to the great king, David, which whether you grew up in church or not or been around church anytime, you've probably heard of David. And First and Second Samuel, for the whole time, that's what they're leading to David as the king. But I've labeled this monarchy of misfits. And what happens is generally we read this story and we're like, okay, Saul, he's the bad king. He's the villain of the story. He's the bad guy. And David, he's the good king. He's the hero. After all, he's a man after God's own heart. Jesus comes from the line of David. He's the hero of not only this story, but of the Old Testament. But both of these characters, including Samuel, are much more complicated than that. Neither of them is fully good. Neither of them is fully bad. And sure, we can look at one story. We can look at David fighting Goliath, and we say, oh, David, what faith, what trust in God. He overcame the giant. And then our conclusion is, with that one story, David's a good guy. He's the hero. We should all be like David. Then we look at another story of David, David and Bathsheba, and a conclusion we would come to if that's the only story we ever had about David is he's a disgusting human being. He's basically a Jeffrey Epstein. We can do the same with Saul. We can find good stories and we can find bad stories. That's why I say it's complicated. The good guy isn't always all that good, and the bad guy isn't always all that bad. And so one story doesn't define a person. I'm not a complete idiot because I booked one flight wrong. You're not a financial genius because you bought Bitcoin for 30 cents in 2011. <laughs> I read a book this summer called Educated by Tara Westover. Highly recommend this book. Even if you're not a huge reader, I think you'll really enjoy the book. It's a great read. 
It's a book about this lady, and, and she grew up in this family. They're fundamentalist Mormons, and they're also preppers, and they live in Idaho up in the mountains, and they're conspiracy theorists, and so the kids get no formal schooling. They're basically removed completely from society. There's really some abuse that is happening within this family, and so the kids are not educated. They're not um, integrated into society. And so for this lady, Tara, that's one part of her story. And she could have allowed that one part of her story to define her life. But not to give you a big spoiler for the book, but she eventually finds her way to BYU. She didn't know how to read. She didn't know how to do math. And she takes some steps and, and learns math and does well enough on a college admittance test to get into BYU. And she gets to BYU and she begins to do really well. She eventually gets into Cambridge, into their PhD program. And she graduates from that. She gets a fellowship at Harvard. People could have looked at her and she could have looked at herself and she could have said, you know, I'm dumb. I'm weird. I come from the backwoods of Idaho. She could have been written off with no chance. And she could have done this for herself as well. There's a quote in the book that just really stood out to me, though. She says this. She says, we are all of us more complicated than the roles we are assigned and the stories other people tell. We are all of us more complicated than the roles we are assigned and the stories other people tell. And I'll add, we're also more complicated than the roles we give ourselves in the stories we write within our own heads. And so as we go through First and Second Samuel, I don't want you to see it as this black and white picture of heroes and villains, of a good guy and a bad guy. These stories are a lot more nuanced than that. History has painted Saul as a villain, and in some respects, that's certainly deserved. He rejected God. He disobeys God's commands. He's more concerned about saving faith than walking in faith, but he's not entirely bad. We're going to learn in the story he demonstrated mercy towards those who didn't want him to lead. He led Israel to victory against enemies. David is considered the hero of the story, and again, in many respects, that title is well-reserved. He loved God with his whole heart, we're told. He sought to obey him. He demonstrated great loyalty to his friends, even Saul, but he did commit adultery. He murdered another human being. He allows his pride to control him. These are complex characters, and these are complex and nuanced stories. And so as we look at these stories, then I want you to see that complexion as a reflection of your lives. That you're not just one story. You're not just one thing that defines you. You are complicated. And so one bad mistake, one bad decision doesn't define your entire life. One great success doesn't define your entire life either. That our intentions typically aren't perfectly good, nor are they completely evil. That our identities aren't wrapped up in a single story or the roles that are assigned to us. But our identity, I hope that you find, is found in a king. The king, the one that we sang about, the one who is, was, and is, and is to come. Jesus is the only perfectly good king, the king who did conquer the grave as we sing, the king that Israel needs and the king that we need. And so that's where we're going with this. I know that's a long introduction to 1 Samuel. So without further ado, if you're reading along, I'm going to be going through this series in the New Living Translation. So we start 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and the writer begins it like this. 
He says, there was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuth in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth. How many of you start reading that and you've checked out already? It was funny. One of the community groups, what did you guys say? Andrea, what did you say you needed last week? They need the easy version of the Bible because they read some of these things. They said, you know, our small group, we're special. We need the easy version of the Bible. So there's a lot of weird names there. Those weird names mean something or they wouldn't be included. And so part of going through this series, I want to teach you when you see things like this, well, why is that there? What's the purpose? Is it to give you some good ideas for some baby names? Those of you who are having kids, Elihu, that's probably a great one. What's happening here? When you see a bunch of names, they are meant to tell us something. We're getting, we're getting a pedigree. We're basically learning that this man, Elkanah, which is, I think, how you say it, he's somebody important. He's someone of means. I'm not all that smart. The only reason I know that is I have a good study Bible. So another thing I want to tell you tonight, as you read and study the Bible, get you a couple of commentaries that go with that, can point some of those things out to you. So this man, we learn in verse 2, Elkanah had two wives, two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah did not. And so again, we're told something here. One, um, the story doesn't open with Saul. story doesn't open with David. I told you there's three characters. It doesn't even open with Samuel per se. And so this big narrative, this long story of First and Second Samuel about the kings of Israel actually begins with the story of a woman named Hannah. And here's what we know about this woman Hannah thus far. She's married. The man is somewhat important. She has a sister wife, meaning she has to share her husband with another woman. Said sister wife has kids with that husband, but Hannah does not. Recurring theme in stories in the Bible, this woman then is barren. And so another thing, when you see recurring themes like that, as you study Scripture, you say, well, that's happened before. That ought to put you on notice that something special is about to happen. So here's what we know in this society about a woman who is barren. It's a patriarchal society. And so children aren't just tiny little humans like Trip running in and out here. And, you know, he's cute and he's your baby. But a, a little child is linked to a woman's worth. And so if you had a child, you were worth more. If you did not have a child, you were basically worth nothing, especially if you did not have a son. And so Hannah's immediate future wasn't secure. She was vulnerable. If her husband were to die, his sons that he has through the other wife, Peninnah, would inherit everything. That would leave Hannah then dependent upon the goodwill of those sons or the lack of their goodwill. And so without a son, she could then end up out on the street if something happened to her husband. But wait, there's more. In the Old Testament, there isn't really, if you've studied it and read it, there really isn't this idea of an afterlife. There's no heaven in the Old Testament if, if you've read it. And so death was kind of the end of things. And so life after death for the people in this ancient world was your descendants. They were your life after death. And I know that's a hard concept for us here on the other side of Christ, but that's how it was. In the ancient world, barrenness by a woman, was always assumed to be the woman's problem. They didn't have any idea of what part the man really played in it. And it was considered a source of great disgrace. And so the role 
given in the story above others to Hannah was this. It would have been one of shame. That's what she would have been known at. What must she have done to deserve such punishment from God? And there would be much speculation associated with that. Verse 3, it says, Each year Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies, that's God, in the tabernacle. Verse 4, on the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, so he loves his wife, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. He has written a story about his wife as well and defined her. He reinforces her story. This barrenness defines you, Hannah. That's your identity. She gets multiple portions of food. You get one. That's who you are because you can't conceive a child. You aren't as valuable. You aren't as valuable to me. You aren't as valuable to our family. You're not as valuable to society, and that means you're also not as valuable to God. That's the role she's been assigned. Verse 6, so Peninnah would taunt Hannah... And make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Hannah might have an IQ of 148. I think that's a high IQ, right? I don't have a high IQ, so I don't know. But she might, she might be a genius, she may serve six days a week, only take off the Sabbath and the food pantry. For this family, she might be the primary caregiver. She might be the one teaching their joint children to know and love God. But nobody assumes that about her story. All her story is to others is this identity of being a barren woman. And it appears that Hannah herself has bought into this story because we're told she's reduced to tears. She's unable to eat. That sounds a lot like depression to me. So let's turn here. What about you? What's your story? What, what defines you? Have you oversimplified your story? Is there some mistake in your past that now defines your entire story? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just one character trait. It's funny. When you become a parent, how quickly that defines us. That's who we are. Forget all the other stuff we used to be in college or high school. Now I'm Emery's dad. People don't even know my name at the dang school. It's just, hey, Emery's dad, come over here. Can you help us out? Can you preach for us on, on Wednesday? It's become my identity. I'm Emery's dad. And certainly that's a part of who I am. But if that one thing is all that defines me, being a parent is the only thing that defines you, then what happens when your child doesn't meet your expectations? It puts a lot of pressure on your kids more than they need. Or what happens when your kids leave home and that was your identity and now they're not there anymore and that dinner table seat is empty, which is what we're experiencing this week? Or what happens with your marriage? Or what happens when they're gone and you're much more complex than that? Let's talk about addicts. We have a lot of addicts here in our church. Even sobriety can be defined by addiction. Yes, AA meetings are important. Yes, remembering that addiction put you through or what it put you through is important. But so is living life and writing new stories. Your addiction from your past does not define you. 
What about careers? Guys are the worst about this. We're notoriously bad for allowing our work to define us. First question, guys, when they meet another guy, what do you do for work? How much food do you get from the altar of work? Does your barrenness in your bank account bring you to tears? Does your work define you? Those who have lost loved ones, oftentimes that one part of the story defines them. People who get a divorce, that now becomes who they are. People with a debility or mental health issues or chronic pain, that defines them. And I'll tell you how good we are writing these singular stories that define people. Let's do a little, little thing here. Throw up the first picture. I assume you all know who that is, right? First word that comes to mind. Rich. So what I wrote down too, okay? Let's throw the next one up. Who's that? Smart. I mean, boom, 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 all around the room. We've just written his story. There's probably a lot of other things about Albert Einstein, right? But nope, he's smart. That's it. What's the next one? Athlete. I am a mind reader because these are the same things I wrote down in my notes. Athlete, Simone, you know who that is, right? Simone Biles. Next one. <laughs> who is that? Some of you don't know. It's Elon Musk. He's the founder of Tesla and PayPal and SpaceX and all. What, what word comes to mind? Deutschcoin. Beautiful. Who said that? Nice. Any others on that one? That wasn't what I wrote down. Wackadoodle is what I wrote down on that one. All right, what about this one? What about this one? Chef. Chef Bobby Flay. That's what, what I've got written down here. So out of five people, Elon Musk, I had Wackadoodle and he had Dogecoin, but we were pretty well, we were pretty well matched up on our one-note definitions of who these people are. Not knowing anything about their lives, we've assigned a story to them. I assume Bill Gates is much more than a rich person. We learned in the Olympics that Simone Biles certainly wants to be known as more than an Olympic athlete. Being rich, being smart, being barren, being an addict, being an adulterer, being American, being black, being white, being an INFP, none of those things completely define us. We're more complicated than that. You're more than one bad choice. You're more than your present successes. And if you are in Christ, you are so much more. Verse 8, they respond, why are you crying, Hannah? This is her husband, Elkanah, responding. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. I'm glad you guys are laughing. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? You should totally be laughing there. Anyone who has struggled with infertility, it is painful. And I do not want to minimize the deep pain associated with that because one of the more challenging things a couple and especially the woman can go through. But you've probably had somebody, if you've gone through that or if you've lost a loved one or, you know, chronic pain or whatever, where someone has come along beside you and, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to encourage you, but they do a really poor job. And so I don't think Elkanah is necessarily a bad guy. What he says is, Hannah, you have me. Isn't that better than 10 sons? Probably not the right thing to say. What should he have said? He should have said, Hannah, I love you. You mean more to me than 10 sons. See the difference. Verse 9, once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Desperation has a very unique way of pushing us to speak to God and to pray. It says, Hannah was in deep 
anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. Verse 11, and she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. When we read Scripture, again, this is another Bible study lesson here. Not everything you read in Scripture is prescriptive. So you saw in the beginning of the story that this guy has two wives. That's not prescriptive. That's not the Bible telling us we should all go out and have multiple wives and sister wives and all that. Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus does prescribe to us how we're to pray, and he tells us how we're to pray. Playing let's make a deal with God is not part of the lesson on how we should pray, but that's what Hannah does here. That being said, God still hears our prayers, even when they're bad, even when they're done wrong, even when they aren't perfect, and he hears them especially when we're desperate and when we're honest. And so what Hannah says here, she says, my son, if you give me one, his hair will never be cut. And what that means is she's going to give God her son. She's going to set him apart as a Nazarite. Nazarites, there were specific rules. They couldn't, it's kind of like the Mandalorian, there's rules for that, that club. That's the Nazarites. You couldn't cut your hair. So Samson, if you know the story, Samson and Delilah, he couldn't cut his hair. He was a Nazarite. There's no drinking of wine, so you can't drink, you can't get drunk, and no going near dead bodies. And so there's this holiness, this set apart for these people that are Nazarites, and their purpose was to serve the Lord completely. That was their lives. Think of a a priest or something today. They are set apart for a specific purpose, and they're things that kind of indicate that they've been set apart. Verse 12, it says, as Hannah was praying to the Lord, Eli, he's all of a sudden in the story, he's a priest there at the temple, watched her. Seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, He thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. I was telling Karen, we see that a lot in Scripture, like, hey, are you drunk because you're doing things that are weird? We saw that when the Holy Spirit descended upon Pentecost. A couple of things happening here. Number one, the fact that Eli has never seen a prayer that passionate as this woman speaks to a lot of the problems probably going on with Israel in that moment, that this is the first time he's ever apparently seen passionate, fervent prayer. But number two, apparently in this time, norm, the norm was to pray out loud. So you come you pray to God, you speak, and you pray out loud. But for Hannah, this prayer is so personal. It's so private. It's so filled with anguish and honesty that while her lips are moving, she's not making a sound. This is a conversation between her and God alone. But for Eli, it's such a strange sight. He thinks she might be drunk. Verse 15, she says, oh no, sir, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I'm very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Hannah is speaking to God. She's pouring out her heart. God, I can't fix this. I'm at the end of my rope. I've tried. I surrender to you, God. I have no hope, but you help me. I almost said Jesus. Help me, God, but I almost said Jesus Because I think this is such a beautiful picture of what we talked about three weeks ago of the gospel. Of coming to that point of utter desperation. Of knowing that we can't save ourselves. And in desperation, turning our eyes to heaven and crying out to God, save me. Verse 17, in that case, Eli said, go in peace. 
May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked him. Again, the gospel is all over this. Eli is a priest, and if you don't know, I mean, priests spoke on behalf of God. And so what he says is, is God speaking through him in the Old Testament. And so Hannah goes into the tabernacle, and she prays, and she cries out in desperation to God, and then God answers. Not because she did anything to earn it, not because of the deal she made with God. This is purely God's grace. It's unmerited favor that he bestows because she has cried out to him. Verse 18, she says, oh, thank you, sir. Then she went back and began to eat, and she was no longer sad. She don't have a kid yet. (laughs) The woman who couldn't eat because of her sorrow now eats because she trusts God. What a beautiful picture of faith demonstrated. Nothing has changed about her outward circumstance. There's no kid. She's still got that mean old sister wife. She's still got an obtuse husband that says dumb things. She still has chores. She's still part of this unjust system that treats women like second-class citizens. But Hannah knows and believes that God has heard her cries, and for her that makes all the difference. She's no longer now defined by barrenness. When we cry out to God in desperation, I can't save myself. In that moment, our prayer is answered. And we may not see immediate change on the outside. Our circumstances may not immediately get better, but we're no longer defined by that one thing. We're no longer defined by that one mistake. We're no longer defined by all that success we had over there or our lack of success over here. We're no longer defined by the roles that others want to assign to us in the stories that they write. We're no longer defined by the stories that we write in our own hands. Our identity becomes sons and daughters of the King of Glory. And that frees us to view our lives as complicated. It's freeing to be able to view your life as something more than one thing and being complicated and multidimensional. It's free to view our lives as having a greater purpose, all the while resting in the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. In due time, as the story moves along, God does give Hannah a son, and she names him what? Samuel. Samuel means God has heard. That's one of the translations for Samuel. His name literally means God has heard. And so Hannah honors her promise to God. She eventually takes Samuel back to the temple. She runs into the same priest, Eli, when she goes back. In verse 27, she tells him, I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to his Lord, to the Lord his whole life. And they worship the Lord there. And that chapter ends, and we then move to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is a simple, beautiful prayer of praise. Hannah just giving praise to God for answering her prayer as she cried out in desperation. And so tonight, we only did three songs to start tonight. We're not going to do a closing song. In honor of Hannah, and to embed this into your head, I want to read her prayer or song, whichever we want to call it. And it's interesting, if you go to the New Testament, you go to the Gospel of Luke, it just matches almost line for line with the prayer of Mary that she prays when she finds out she's having a son. And so tonight, I'm going to read this prayer as we close tonight of Hannah. And as I read that, I want you to read it with me. But not out loud, I want you to be like Hannah. Move your lips, 
follow along, but be silent. So let's do that as we close tonight. Verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman who had many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but he raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich, but he brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes and places them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to the king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. That's the start of the story of Samuel, Saul, and David. And as we leave, remember I mentioned that this is written, you know, 600 B.C., about a time period around 1,000 B.C. There's 400 years that has passed through them. And so the people writing it or writing back, they know the story. They know how the story ends. And so they're leading us down the path to the kings. And so they end this chapter. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. The anointed one that they are leading us to is David. But anointed one means Messiah. First and Second Samuel are books about flawed, complex, imperfect human kings. They're not entirely good. They're not entirely bad. It's also a book about a promise that a true anointed king, a Messiah, would one day come. Not from a monarchy of misfits, but he would be a monarch for us misfits. And so that's where we're going with this study. Tonight was an introduction. We're going to walk through it together, and I'm excited. And so every week, I'm going to give you some homework, because I think you'll come in here, just suck up a lot more of what we're talking about if you take some time to read in advance and try to process it yourself. So I'm going to give you the homework right now. Next week, it's chapters 3 through 8. I'm actually going to preach on chapter 8. I think there's a slide for that, Peyton, somewhere. There we go. Uh, 1 Samuel, chapters 3 through 8. That's for you really studious people. If you're like, man, I, I just Bible reading stuff is tough. I'm going to preach chapter 8. And so if you want to read that, read in advance, come in here. That's what we're talking about next week. Just one other quick announcement. Youth group. Got a lot of questions about that. We are still doing youth group. Dwayne and Karina are now involved in their, their center over in Cape Coral. Actually, they're in Alaska, but they are, are involved in their center over in Cape Coral. They're not going to be leading the youth group this year, but we're going to do it by kind of consensus, and I'm going to lead a big part of that. And so youth group, middle school and high school students, if you're in the room tonight, September 8th, so it's the week after Labor Day weekend. We're going to do it on Wednesday nights. It's going to be a discussionary type format. We're going to come together like the community groups do. We're going to go out for dinner together. Together, and I'm going to challenge you with some discussions. And so I wanted to make that quick announcement. So we close tonight. 
Pray for Louisiana. I don't know if you all saw everything that's happening with the hurricane. It looks pretty nasty. If, if Katrina was a Category 3 and this is a Category 4, this could be some major devastation. And so I do believe in the power of prayer, just like Hannah prayed. So, so take those requests to God uh, tonight. Our hearts should be cr- troubled with that, and so take it to the king. So let me send you off tonight. You are more than whatever that thing is that defines you. I was thinking about my wife, Karen, this week. Her name's Karen. A lot of people want to define her as a Karen. <laughs> I think it's Scott Morrison over here. It's like, Scott, how many people would just assume about you, oh, that's the bodybuilder guy, that's, that's who he is, or whatever, or whatever stories they've written about you. You're this, or you're that, but you're much more complex than that. And that means that everybody you come across is also more complex than the story you have assigned to them. So give them grace, accept God's grace. God bless. Love you all. See you next week.